Volume 1, Chapter 2 of Diana Tempest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume 1, Chapter 2. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul. Job, Chapter 21, Verse 25. A profound knowledge of human nature enunciated the decree, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house, and relegated the neighbour's wife to a back seat among the servants and livestock. The intense love of a house, passing the love even of prohibited women, is a passion which those who nightly pitch their moving tents in villas and hard dwellings, and look upon heaven as their home, can hardly imagine, and frequently regard with the amused contempt of ignorance. But where pride is a leading power, the affections will be generally found immediately in its wake. In these days it is the fashion, especially of the vulgar-minded well-born, to decry birth as being of no account. Those who do so apparently fail to perceive that, by the very fact of decrying it, they proclaim their own innate lack of appreciation of those very advantages of refinement, manners, and a certain distinction of freemasonry of feeling, which birth has evidently withheld from them personally, but which, nevertheless, birth alone can bestow. The strong hereditary pride of race, which is as natural a result of time and fixed habitat as the forest oak, which is bred in the bones and comes out in the flesh from generation to generation, is accompanied, as a rule, by a passionate love not of houses, but of the house, the home, the eerie, the one sacred spot from which the race sprang. Among the Tempests, devotion to Overley had been an hereditary instinct from time immemorial. Other possessions, gifts of royalty or dowers of heiresses, came and went. Overly remained from generation to generation. Scapegrace Tempest squandered the family fortune and mortgaged the family properties, but others rose up in their place who, whatever else was lost, kept fast hold on Overly. The old castle on the crag had passed through many vicissitudes. It had been originally built in Edward II's time, and the remains of fortification and the immense thickness of the outer walls showed how fierce had been the inroads of Scot and Borderer which such strength was needed to repel. The massive arched doorway through which the yelling hordes of the Tempests and their retainers swooped down, with black lion on pennant flying, upon the enemy, was walled up in the time of the Tudors, and the vaulted basement with its acutely pointed chamfered arches became the dungeons of the later portion of the building, the cellars of the present day. Overley had entertained royalty royally in its time, and had sheltered royalty more royally still. Cromwell's cannon had not prevailed against it. It had been partially burnt, it had been partially rebuilt. There it still stood, a glory, and a princely possession on the lands that had been meted in the Doomsday Book, to a certain Norman knight, Ivo de Tempet, the founder of an iron race. And in the nineteenth century a tempest held it still. Tempest had become a great name, Gradually wealth had gathered round Overley, as the lichen had gathered round its grey stones. There were coal-mines now among the marshlands of William the Conqueror's favourite, harbours and towns along the sea-coast. Tempest of Overley was a power, a name that might be felt, that had been felt. The name ranked high among the great commoners of England. Titles and honours of various kinds had been offered it from time to time, but for a tempest, to be a tempest was enough and Overley Castle had remained their solitary dwelling-place. 
Houses were built for younger sons, but the head of the family made his home invariably at Overley itself. There were townhouses in London and York, but country seats were not multiplied. To be a tempest was enough. To live and die at Overley was enough. Someone was dying at Overley now. Mr. Tempest had come to that pass, and was taking it very quietly, as he had taken everything so far, from the elopement of his betrothed with his brother fourteen years ago, to the death of his poor, pretty, faithless wife in the room where he was now lying, the round, oak-panelled room which followed the outer wall of the western tower, the room in which he had been born, where tempests had arrived and departed and lain in state. And now, after a solitary life, he was dying, as he had lived, alone. He had gone too far down the steep path, which leads no man knows whither, to care much for anything that he was leaving behind. He had not read his brother's letter announcing his coming. It lay with a pile of others for some one hereafter to sort or burn. Mr. Tempest had done with letters, had done with everything except death. The pressure of death's hand was heavy on him, upon his eyes, upon his heart. He had been a punctual man all his life. He hoped he should not be kept waiting long. Colonel Tempest followed the servant with inward trepidation across the white stone hall. He had been at once admitted, for it was known that Mr. Tempest was dying, and the only wonder in the minds of nurse and doctor and servants was that his only brother had not arrived before. The servant led the way along the picture-gallery. A child was playing at the further end of it, under the Velasquez, or, to speak more correctly, was looking earnestly out of one of the low mullioned windows. The voice of the young year was calling him from without, as the spring calls only the young. But he might not go out to-day, though there were nests waiting for him, and holiday glories in wood and meadow that his soul longed after. He had been told he must stay in, in case that stern, silent father who was dying should ask for him. John did not think he would want him, for when had he ever wanted him yet? But he remained at his post at the window, breathing his silent longing into a little mist on the pane. He looked round as Colonel Tempest and Archie approached, and then came gravely forward and put out a strong little brown hand. Colonel Tempest just touched it without speaking, and turned his eyes away. He could not trust himself to look again at the erect, dignified little figure with its square, dark face. When had there ever been a dark tempest? The two boys, near of an age, looked each other straight in the eyes. Archie was the younger and the taller of the two. "'Are you John?' he asked at once. "'Yes.' "'John what?' "'No, John Amias Tempest.' "'Archie,' said Colonel Tempest, who had grown rather pale, you can stay here with until I send for you. And with one backward glance at them, he followed the servant to an ante-room, where the doctor presently came to him. I am his only brother, said Colonel Tempest hoarsely. Can I see him? Oh, certainly, my dear sir, certainly. But at the same time, all agitation, all tendency to excitement must be rigorously avoided. Is he really dying? interrupted Colonel Tempest. He is. How long has he? Colonel Tempest felt as if a hand were tightening round his throat. The doctor shrugged his shoulders. Three hours, five hours. He might live through the night, and I cannot say. There would be time, said Colonel Tempest to himself. 
and not without a shuddering foreboding that his brother might die in his actual presence without giving him time to bolt, he entered the sick-room, from which the doctor had beckoned the nurse, and closed the door. The room was full of light, for the time man had been oppressed by the darkness in which he lay, and a vain attempt had been made to alleviate it by the flood of April sunshine which had been let into the room. Through the open window came the rapture of the birds. Mr. Tempest lay perfectly motionless, with his eyes half-closed. His worn face had a strong family resemblance to his brother's, with the beauty left out. "'Jack,' said Colonel Tempest. Mr. Tempest heard from an immense distance, and came painfully back across long wastes and desert places of confused memories, came slowly back to the room and the dim sunshine and himself, and stopped short with a jarred sense as he saw his own long, feeble hands laid upon the counterpane. He had forgotten them, though he recognised them now he saw them again. Why had he returned? "'Jack,' said the voice again. Mr. Tempest opened his eyes suddenly, and looked full at his brother, the false, weak, handsome face of the man who had injured him. It all came back, the passion and the despair, the intolerable agony of jealousy and baffled love, and the deadly, deadly hatred. Fourteen years ago was it since Diana had been taken from him? It returned upon him as though it were yesterday. A light flamed up in the dying eyes, before which Colonel Tempest quailed. All the sentences he had prepared beforehand seemed to fail him, as prepared sentences have a way of doing, being made to fit imaginary circumstances, and being consequently unsuited to any others. Mr. Tempest, who had not prepared anything, had the advantage. "'Curse you!' he said, in his low, difficult whisper. "'You damned scoundrel!' Colonel Tempest was shocked. To bear a grudge after all these years. Jack had always been vindictive. And what an unchristian state of mind for one on the brink of that nightmare of horror, the grave! He was unable to articulate. "'What are you here for?' said Mr. Tempest, after a pause. "'Who let you in? Why can't I be allowed to die in peace?' "'Oh, don't talk like that, Jack,' gasped Colonel Tempest, speaking extemporary, after fumbling in all the empty pockets of his mind for something appropriate to say. "'I am sure I am very sorry for—' A look warned him that even his tactful reference to a certain subject would be resented. "'But it's all past and gone now, and it's—' It's a long time ago, and you're dying, suggested Mr. Tempest, and hurried on Colonel Tempest, glad of the lift. It's not for my own sake I've come, but, but I've got a boy, Jack. He's here now. I brought him with me. Such a fine, handsome boy, every inch a Tempest, the image of our father. I don't want to speak for myself, but for the sake of the boy, and the place, and, and the old name. Colonel Tempest hid his quivering face in his hands. He was really moved. The sick man's mouth twitched. He evidently understood his brother's incoherent words. "'John succeeds,' he said. The two men looked away from each other. "'John is, is not a tempest,' said Colonel Tempest, in a choked voice. "'You know it. Everybody knows it.' "'He was born in wedlock.' "'Yes, but he is not your son. You would have divorced her if she had lived. He is the legal heir, of course, if you countenance him, but—' Something might be done still. It's not too late. 
I know the estate goes, fading you and your children, to me and mine. Don't bear a grudge, Jack. You can't have any feeling for the child. It's, it's against nature. Remember the old name and the old place that has never been out of the hands of a tempest yet. Don't drag our honour in the dust and put it to open shame. Think how it would have grieved our father. Let me call in the doctor and the nurse and disown him now, before witnesses. Such things have been done before, and maybe again. I can contest his claim, then. I, I shall have something to go on. And you must have proofs of his illegitimacy, if you will only give them. But there will be no chance if you uphold him to the last, and if, and if you die without speaking. Mr. Tempest made no answer, except to look his brother steadily in the face. The look was sufficient. It said plainly enough, That is what I mean to do. Colonel Tempest lost all hope, but despair made one final clutch, a last desperate appeal to his brother's feelings. It is one of the misfortunes of self-centred people that their otherwise convenient habit of disregarding what is passing in the minds of others leads them to trample on their feelings at the very moment when most desirous of turning them to their own account. Colonel Tempest, with the best intentions of a pure self-interest, trampled heavily. "'Pass me over! Cut me out!' he said, with a vague inappreciation of points of law. "'I'll sign anything you please. But let the little chap have it. Let Archie have it. Die's son!' There was a silence that might be felt. Approaching death seemed to make a stride in those few breathless seconds, but it seemed also as if a determined will were holding it momentarily at arm's length. Mr. Tempest turned his fading face towards his brother. His eyes were unflinching, but his voice was almost inaudible. "'Leave me,' he said. "'John succeeds.' The blood rushed to Colonel Tempest's head, and then seemed to ebb away from his heart. A sudden horror took him of some subtle change that was going forward in the room, and, seeing all was lost, he hastily left it. The two boys had fraternised meanwhile. Each, it appeared, was collecting coins, and Archie gave a glowing account of the cabinet his father had given him to put them in. John kept his in an old sock, which he solemnly produced, and the time was happily passed in licking the most important coins to give them a momentary brightness, and in comparing notes upon them. John was sorry when Colonel Tempest came hurriedly down the gallery and carried Archie off before he had time to say good-bye or to offer him his best coin, which he had hot in his hand, with a view to presentation. Before he had time to gather up his collection, the old doctor came to him, and told him, very gravely and kindly, that his father wished to see him. John nodded, and put down the sock at once. He was a person of few words, and, though he longed to ask a question now, he asked it with his eyes only. John's deep-set eyes were very dark and melancholy. Could it be that his mother's remorse had left its trace in the young, unconscious eyes of her child? Their beauty somewhat redeemed the square ugliness of the rest of his face. The doctor patted him on the head, and led him gently to Mr. Tempest's door. Oh, "'Go in and speak to him,' he said. "'Do not be afraid. I shall be in the next room all the time.' "'I am not afraid,' said John drawing himself up, and he went quietly across the great oak-panelled room, and stood at the bedside. There was a look of tension in Mr. Temple's face and hands, as if he were holding on tightly to something which, 
did he once let go, he would never be able to regain. "'John!' he said, in an acute whisper. "'Yes, father.' The child's face was pale, and his eyes looked awed, but they met Mr. Tempest's bravely. "'Try and listen to what I am going to say, and remember it. You are a very little boy now, but you will hold a great position some day, when you are a man. You will be the head of the family. Tempest is one of the oldest names in England. Remember what I say.' The whisper seemed to break and ravel down under the intense strain put on it to a single quivering strand. Remember, you will understand it when you are older. It is a great trust put into your hands. When you grow into a man, much will be expected of you. Never disgrace your name. It stands high. Keep it up. Keep it up. The whisper seemed to die altogether but an iron will forced it momentarily back to the grey, toiling lips. "'You are the head of the family. Do your duty by it. You will have no one much to help you. I shall not be there. You must learn to be an upright, honourable gentleman by yourself. Do you understand?' "'Yes, father.' "'And you will remember?' "'Yes, father.' If the lip quivered, the answer came, nevertheless. "'That is all. You can go.' The child hesitated. "'Good-night,' he said gravely, advancing a step nearer. The sun was still streaming across the room, but it seemed to him, as he looked at the familiar, unfamiliar face, that it was night already. "'Oh, kiss me,' said the dying man. "'Good-night.' And the child went. Mr. Tempest sighed heavily, and relaxed his hold on the consciousness that was ready to slip away from him, and wander feebly out he knew not whither. Hours and voices came and went. His own voice had gone down into silence before him. It was still broad daylight, but the casement was slowly growing a glimmering square, and he observed it. Presently it flickered, glimmered and went out. End of Volume 1 Chapter 2